Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the newlyweds, Mr. and Mrs. Simon Doyle. You must meet Hercule Poirot. My congratulations, madame. Merci. He's only the greatest detective alive. I suspect you invited me for reasons other than the fun. You had something to hide. We have the Karnak all to ourselves, a chef and enough champagne to fill the Nile. Should have hidden it, shouldn't you? When you have money, no one is ever really your friend. It's too late to change events. It's time to face the consequence. Someone is dead. The crime is murder. The murderer is one of you. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace. And as always, I'm delighted to be joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a pleasure to be here. Literally here, in your flat. Yeah, in person. The first that we've done in a while. Since the London Film Festival. Wow. Yes, it's been too long, but it is splendid to be in your lovely flat and talking about a film that we don't know the other one's opinion of. <laughs> yeah, so suitably we are in a locked room. So <laughs> Yes, we are in a locked room, that's right. Suitably. Well, yeah, well today we're going to be talking about Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile. We are indeed. The follow-up to 2018's Murder on the Orient Express. 2017, I think. Was it? Yeah. Is it really? I think so. Come on, let's, let's find it. Let's just confirm this. 2017. Wow, because we saw that at the cinema. That was, well, yeah, so four and a half years ago we saw that. You think they would have made one quicker and would have got one out sooner than that, but, well, there must be some reason for that. I don't know. Yeah, I can, I'm sure there's only one reason and not a litany. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So Death on the Nile, obviously the adaptation of the Agatha Christie book. Obviously, this was a film that was supposed to be released, I think, in about April or May of 2020. It was shot in 2019. Something happened in 2020 that meant that the cinemas had to close for a bit. Can't quite remember what that was. And then they were going to release it last year, but there was, yeah. Well, they were going to release it in 2020. Um, I think they were going to release it later in 2020, but then something happened that meant that they had to review their plans. What what was that, Rob? I'm sure we will make allusions to it over the... uh, I think we just need to uh, say it. Yeah, I think it's um, their secondary leading man, Army Hammer, being accused of, among other things, sexual assault. Yes, it turns out that Army Hammer could very well be not a very nice person and, yes, is under investigation for sexual assault. Also, he's been accused of psychological abuse, physical abuse, a predilection for cannibalism. So that is why it gave them pause if they could release this film at all, I think. Cause I, yeah, I mean, it's not like a... I mean, obviously, the, the comparison is all the money in the world. The um, Ridley Scott film that had Kevin Spacey was essentially... Um, was edited out of. They went and reshot all those scenes with Christopher Plummer. This isn't a film where they could have done that because it's such an ensemble cast and because Army Hammer is so in the mix. He is the secondary lead, which ironically means they would need all the money in the world to reshoot this because they would have to get everyone else back as well. And when you have a cast that includes Gal Gadot, Russell Brand... I think they should have done a reverse The Social Network and just digitally replaced his face with another actor. Um, That would have been interesting. Tom Hanks (laughs) just put his face on there. 
we will talk about the film eventually, but we just have to get past the fact that, yeah, this film has been delayed because, one, because of COVID, then two, because it appears as if one of the lead characters is not a nice person. Well, he is the second actor in two consecutive films, you know, the, the second of this film, to have been accused of assault. What was the first one? Johnny Depp. Oh, Johnny yes, Depp's yes, in he... Mur- well, he's the victim in Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, that's right. They do Evil Under the Sun. Tom Hanks, Tom Hollander. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Keanu Reeves. Who are just the nicest people. And can we just do a serious background check on them? It's a bit tragic. Well, it's tragic for multiple reasons. That the meta-narrative often ends up being more interesting than the film itself. So I think at one point this was being rumoured that in 2020 they were just going to put it on to Disney Plus at Christmas and say, have Soul and have this one too. Then there was talk that it was going to be reshot. I mean, how much of this is just internet rumour? It's highly likely that a lot of it is, but they must have talked at one point, well, can we reshoot? But then looked at the film and said, no, we can't. And then it was like, just seemed to go really, really quiet. And I just assumed they were going to put it onto Disney Plus and say, there you go, just have that, have that, over Easter or something like that. So I am absolutely amazed that it's been given a cinema release. And in the States, so we looked up before we started recording, it was released in the States this weekend and did just under $13 million, which is... An appreciable sum of money. Well, for this film at the moment, it's a smash hit. It's like, this film, which isn't a superhero film, it's actually quite a cosy, old-fashioned feeling film, has done $13 million just under. That is really impressive. Its budget is listed around $90 million. And it's current, again, it's according to, according to the, the source that is Wikipedia, Global Box Office is apparently currently at about 33.5 million. Right, okay. So I think, I, think, I think Disney at this point is like, if we can make this roughly break even. Yeah, indeed. But I think it's one of those where they must be looking at 13 million in the States going, wow, that's just happy days. Well, should we just, um, and by we I mean I, just get all of my army hammer puns out of the way now in terms of his cannibalism, because I'm sorry, it just amuses me when incredibly rich, because I think army hammer's grandfather was an oil tycoon. So he is very moneyed, which means you're he's got the best lawyers in the world and stuff like that. But um, you're a tall, handsome white guy from a moneyed family, from a billionaire, from family, a billionaire family. How do well, sorry, very obvious how you how you quote unquote fuck this up. But it's like, yeah, all you had to do was, well, not to say that, you know, he's accused, he's not, you know, he's not been convicted, but all you had to do is not do that. Yes. I mean, this plays very much into my narrative of all incredibly rich people are weird and bored, so therefore just do things to try and test the extremes. But again, I was reading one of the things where apparently one of his girlfriends said that he, in a not kidding way suggested that she have her lower ribs removed. And I'm sure he sold it to her as like, it's a cosmetic thing, it means that you'll be, yeah, that you'll have like a better figure, stuff like that, you'll be, you know, more chance of being in movies. So he could eat them. That's just a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, he does realise they don't let you take them home with you. It's not like fucking takeout. The thing is, Rob, you are talking about that from the position of being a non-billionaire. Yeah. When you're a billionaire, you can take them home with you and eat them. Ugh. So anyway, just indulge me. So I think that Army Hammer approached this as a role he could really sink his teeth into. There's a lot to chew on with his performance in this. Some of it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. And it was like, oh wow, this is also the last time that we'll probably see Army Hammer on a big screen. 
Uh, you say that. I've heard that he is lined up for a remake of Soylent Green. <laughs> They're doing it as a comedy. He's got a happy ending. <laughs> That's right. Come on, everyone. <laughs> it's dinner time. Ring the bell. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so Death on the Nile. What is the plot of Death on the Nile? Should we IMDb it and see how far IMDb can get wrong, like, a classic survey synopsis? That's fine. This is entirely adequate. What? Actually, I'm going to do the bell. I'm going to do the accent for this, just to read the synopsis, and I promise I won't do it again during the during the podcast. Oh, that's right, you could do it. While on vacation on the Nile, Hercule Poirot must investigate the murder of a. So listeners would have heard a bleep there because the IMDb does have a spoiler in it. Because I don't know about you, Rob. I hadn't read the book, hadn't seen any previous version of this story. I had no idea who was going to die. I came to this really, really cold and enjoyed the fact that I didn't know who was going to die. So, I, yeah, so we bleep that because it actually does say who is the person who gets killed. I didn't come to it cold. I read all the books when I was in my early teens. Uh, they did a re-release, a Blu-ray re-release of all the uh, Peter Ustinov films a few years ago. Well, no, actually, of, of all the kind of classic Poirot films a couple of years ago. Uh, that I re- And I reviewed them all then. I was interested to see how far they would deviate from if at all, from, you know, the, the original, the quote-unquote original, um, the answer is not very much. Okay. Well, let's go into, like, a little bit of the plot anyway to talk about who's in this film. So, Army Hammer plays Simon Doyle, who is on his honeymoon in Egypt with his new wife, played by Gal Gadot, and she is... Lynette Ridgeway. Thing is, there is trouble in Paradise because following them is Jacqueline, Simon's previous fiance, and she's none too happy that he got married to someone else. Hercule Poirot is just happening to be vacationing in Egypt and um, also along for the ride on... The Karnak. Karnak, that's it. So also aboard the Karnak, which is the boat that they take down the Nile, is Russell Brand as Dr... Linus Windlesham. And we have French and Saunders as a society woman and her... What's the, what's the name for... Companion. Companion, okay. Because she's not a maid and she's not a handmaid. She's kind of a nurse as well. Well, she's a, a nurse. nurse as well. So Dawn French plays the companion and Jennifer Saunders, the society woman. Who else is there? Oh, well, you've also got Tom Bateman returning as Book, Poirot's friend who, you know, as in, as in uh, Murder on the Iron Express, is kind of the catalyst for him joining the party here. Um, you've got Annette Benning as Euphemia, who's Book's mother, who's sharp-eyed, sharp-tongued... Ali Faisal as a character called Andrew Cachadorian, uh, who's Lynette's cousin. And again, it's very much that kind of ensemble. It is. Well, he plays the lawyer, doesn't he? Yeah, he He's... plays the lawyer. You've, you've got Rose Leslie. You've got Rose Leslie of, uh, of Game of Thrones fame as Louise, who's uh, Lynette's maid. You've got Sophie Ocanedo as Salome Otterborn, who, uh, if uh, the people who've seen the um, Peter Ustinov film will remember that character being, I think, a romance novelist played by Angela Lansbury. Here, she's a jazz singer. And she's the aunt of Rosalie, who's kind of her business manager, who's played by Letitia Wright. Yes, indeed. Is she a jazz singer or is she a blues singer? Uh, the, the thing I'm looking at says jazz, but I would have categorised it as blues, but I don't know. Let's go with blues. I, I don't know enough of the distinction to argue with somebody who would... Well, I'm going to assume that the film did its research and uh, that she's a blues singer because they just say blues throughout the film. And it becomes this little joke that Hercule Poirot just keeps saying, I like your bluesy music. So yeah, so it's one of those things where, yes, you have this ensemble cast, they're all on this boat, and then there is murder. But who is it? There's only one man in the world that can solve the crime. Or there's anyone who has seen any... (laughs) 
I have to admit, I did guess who it was and why they were doing it when something happened <laughs> very kind of early on. There's like a climax point. Actually, not early on. It's, there's like a climax point about halfway through when it was like, I think it's this, and I think it's this for this reason. Well, it's one of those where it's like, okay, there are, obviously there's, there's a boat full of suspects. Yeah. Plenty of red herrings. Um, but that's the only outcome that would be satisfying because anything else would just feel a bit rant, a bit arbitrary. Yeah, but the thing is, the reason why, and so we don't know, as I said, what each other thinks of this film. I'm going to admit, I enjoyed this film. One of the reasons I enjoyed it was because as soon as something happened, I thought, okay, that's such a big thing that's happened. I'm not entirely sure what we're seeing is the whole story. So I think it's this for these reasons. That turned out to be the case, but because... The other characters were just so enjoyable and their backstories were just, I thought, very interesting and fun. I enjoyed thinking, well, it could be them or it could be them or it could be them. But to your point, it's like, well, this is the one that makes the most sense narratively. But I do like the fact that it could be someone else because I think that some of these motivations are quite fun and interesting here. So yeah, I thought it was all right. I, I, was, I was actually quite a big fan of the Murder on the Orange Express adaptation. I didn't enjoy this as much as that, partly because it takes a bit longer to get going, you know, as the, as the novel does in, in, by comparison. It's also interesting, you can, they're not exact parallels, but you can almost look at the cast of Murder on the Orange Express and find the equivalent here. For example, you know, in, the, in Murder on the Orange Express, it's got the sort of elderly dragon-like, you know, socialite and, and her maid. In that, it's uh, Judy Dench and um, Olivia Coleman. And here you've got French and Saunders. It's not exactly, the dynamics not exactly the same. In the first one you've got Michelle Pfeiffer. Here you've got Annette Benning. In the yeah. first one you've got Leslie Odom Jr. is playing a doctor. Here it's Russell Brand. Yeah, and you know you can't you you can't extrapolate that too far because I was trying to think about who's Army Hammer in the original. It's like Derek Jacobi. Oh no, that doesn't work. I, Derek Jacobi. I think it could have been him because he also tends to chew the scenery of that. <laughs> so. There we go. I do. You know, I'm a I'm a big murder mystery. I mean, I did my dissertation on the detective novel as a construct. I think part of it was that I knew what, based on previous, and the novel and previous adaptations, likely what it was going to be. And, it, and watching it, I was like, okay, I, I know I know what this is. And I think it's maybe less enjoyable when you know the central mechanism really mm. well. I mean, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a guilt clock of a movie in terms of, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about Branner's direction. I think Branagh's direction kind of suits something like this. He's, you know, he's he's very good at like adding, you know, interesting directorial flourishes to a scene. You could argue maybe too many interesting directorial flourishes. Well, that's interesting. But but I think this film, I think this hot film certainly holds holds those flourishes in a better supports those flourishes better than Belfast does. Yeah. So a couple of things there. I thought that you were entirely right about the direction of Belfast looked like a person who would really, really want to direct. This was the first time they got a chance to direct. It's full of directing to the point where I actually think it's quite distracting. This, I think, was actually much more of a classically shot film that suited the story and the feel. So what does guilt clock mean? So a guilt, as in sort of like gold, gold, like an old, like it's in G-I-L-T. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a, you know, old, ornate carriage clock covered in gold leaf. Right, I see, yeah, yeah. I think it always, guilt clock like another device of the detective novel, I don't know. <laughs> the guilt clock is actually, that'd be, that'd be a good title for a detective novel, isn't the it? The guilt clock, yeah, indeed. Having that. <laughs> um, so I did enjoy this. I thought this was no better or any worse than Murder on the Orient Express. I thought, that's interesting. You've made a film that's exactly as good as the other one you did about an Agatha Christie thing. Because I thought the Murder on the Orient Express opened with a very good scene, then had a bit of a, not dull, but like a, this could have been tightened stretch where it kind of sets everyone up. Actually, I thought that this one was better 
in some ways. Well, because... this is literally a scene where Book does an exposition dump in like two minutes. He goes, that person, that person, that person, that person, that person, <laughs> that, that person, bit. that person, and now we go. <laughs> it's like... That bit, actually, in this film, yeah, that's right. Death on the Nile, they're at a party, and he basically just talks the room. And I actually quite like the way that he got interrupted when he was doing that, because it's like, this is such a mechanical way of telling him, just introducing your characters, that it's like, can we even get away with this? I thought it got away with it enough, because again, it has like a slightly old-fashioned feel to it. On the whole, I think they're exactly the same in terms of how much I enjoyed them. I think there were elements of this in terms of the murder investigation that were better than Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, I thought this was more fun in the second half. And I have to admit, it was one of those where I I quite like the fact that I didn't know anything about the film, other than that there would be a death on the Nile. As it turns out, there were, spoiler, more than one death. Yeah, I I definitely like the second half of this more than the first. I think the interrogation scenes work, because as soon as you put Poirot in a room and rely on his powers of observation, he'll do do a bit of of grandstanding around, actually, I observe this, and I I said I wasn't going to do that again. That was more more French than Belgian. uh, But I'm just going to get my Cluso out. Yeah. <laughs> but go on. Um, as soon as you, as soon as it does that, I'm immediately on board because it's like, yeah, that that's what the detective novel's about. It's about detection, and they are good fun scenes. Um, and Branner does play it with a comic touch, even though because of the age we live in, he has to have some psychological depth. So uh, I was watching the Kermode review, and he said the mustache has an origin story in this one. It's literally. <laughs> And it's like I mean, we're gonna have a spoilers section, right? We'll have a, go have a, go have a spoilers section. I thought you should do, yeah. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that in spoilers. Yeah, so it was one of those where I thought, but the psychological depth or the heartache or the tragedy of the Poirot figure didn't intrude on this one as much as I thought it did in Murder on the Orient Express. I actually liked the beginning. The beginning of this film is a number of years before the actual events of the main part of the film, and I thought that was a pretty interesting way to open up the film. Won't say what it was, but I thought that's an interesting way to start your film. And I thought that the de-aging, because of course it's uh, Mm. a number of years before, but I thought that the de-aging of Kenneth Branagh was pretty good. I I found it a bit distracting. Yeah. Is that because... Just because he looked younger? (laughs) No, as in, like, it's one of those... I, again, I don't know enough to talk about, but it's one of those where it's just the cheeks are very smooth. Okay, we're just going to remove any detail from the cheeks. It all just looks a bit rigid to me. Uh, I, thought it looked, I thought it looked pretty natural. I, mean, I actually thought it looked better than in The Irishman, which is a film that is a better film than this. But it's interesting how The Irishman is like, we have got better in the two years since The Irishman. Um, it's also the opening of this is in black and white, which I think is very, very forgiving, when you don't have to have flesh tones on your younger character. Yeah, so... We have to go back to Army Hammer, I'm afraid, because when it's introduced, there were certain points here where I thought, I wonder if they thought about just snipping tiny bits of this. Because do you remember what one of the first things he does is? Nuzzles. Yeah. yeah he, he nuzzles his, his uh, paramour. Which basically means he sort of like pretends to bite her neck. And it's like, that's literally the first thing he does in this film, is he pretends to eat someone. <laughs> they must have had a discussion and thought, though, go on, it, it'll make at least one person in the Odeon Cinema on Shaftesbury Avenue on Friday afternoon laugh. He's also described as um, dashingly handsome and oh so very simple. And it's like, there's one thing Army Hammer's not, it's simple. <laughs> he is not a simple man. He has got some deep, dark waters running through him. So there were a few things there, whereas you were saying, like, yeah, the meta-narrative of real-life events is colouring certain things in this well, film. It's also interesting because there are repeated references to the fact that Gal Gadot's character, Lynette Ridgway, played Cleopatra in a school play. And there's even a scene in this where she's dressed as Cleopatra. And Gal Gadot's... Sorry, I'm sorry. Gal Gadot uh, is, of course, playing the lead in the new remake adaptation thing. They're doing Cleopatra again. Mm. 
Did we not learn our lesson the first time? <laughs> and, and that's the thing, is that the last big screen Cleopatra was 60-odd years ago. Um, it was a smash hit. It, yes, it's yes. just that it also cost all the money yeah. in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, required two studios to fund it and took years... To the point where I think she had a baby during production, and I'm just, I'm just, but it did make a huge amount of money. I'm just not looking forward to the discourse surrounding that film. It's going to be very tiresome. Yeah, but you can ignore it. It's an interesting director, though, isn't it? Yes, let's see. Let's see who it is. It's not Ridley Scott. I know that. It's being directed by Carrie Scogland. Okay, that's not who I thought. I thought it was being directed by someone who's mainly worked in TV. Most recently in um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh, right, that is not... I thought it had a really, really big director attached to it. It potentially did at one point. <laughs> yes, indeed. Someone along the lines of a Denny Villeneuve, but... Um, okay. Oh, God, Gal Gadot's got a story credit. This oh, in well. no way smacks a vanity project. No. Oh, apparently there's a separate version being produced by Sony and directed by Denny Villeneuve. I thought it was a Denny Villeneuve. They're making two Cleopatra movies. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not making two Cleopatra movies. They're making whoever gets the cameras rolling on the first one. Well, in the words of Godzilla, let them fight. (laughs) 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 We've had to do a crossover between the movies and um, Cleo versus Cleo. I now now want to see a movie, a fictional movie about the making of those two movies where they're both having to try and jeopardise the other one, sabotage the production on the other one. It's like a scene in Death on the Nile where, you know, the lead almost gets crushed by a giant boulder. Yes, that's right. I didn't mind the fact that at one point she was dressed up as Cleopatra, particularly as it was done in that it was like a, it was a tourist thing, wasn't it? That you could just pose in the garb. It's Egypt. So yeah, you would do that. One of the things, there's a time when this would have been matte paintings, although apparently the entire 1978 version was filmed on location. Yes, it's very, yeah. Um, to the point where Bette Davis, who's in that film, said there was a time when they would have built the Nile for us. Now we have to go and just become stuntmen on the Nile because apparently it's such it was, a hard life, isn't it? It is like it's like oh, I like you, Bette Davis. Not being that. So the original was filmed on location. There's a time in the time that Bette Davis was talking about when this would have been matte paintings and glorious practical sets. This was pretty much all digital photography, digital matte painting, CGI. I don't think there was any location. I don't even think they left the studios. <laughs> it's all green screen. There were some times when I thought, well, the pyramids look pretty impressive, considering that they're not real pyramids. But most of it was like, I do have a little bit of a problem with just how fake this looks sometimes. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, the CGI is pretty decent, but it is still like a cutscene from Assassin's Creed on the PS5. It's like... It's just very, very saturated yeah. colours. Yeah, none of the colours are really natural. It's like, well, the light source to provide that light would mean that... The planet s- would be on fire. Yeah, <laughs> that the sun is really, really close and also is, like, exploding, I think, because everything is just oh, that'd be a, a hot orange. You get halfway through and it turns out you're actually watching some weird moonfall spin-off. <laughs> like, yeah, they'll start floating. <laughs> Um, Monsieur Poirot, the sun is exploding. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the sun that did it. So yeah, it was one of those where I thought, yeah, this is, some of this is very handsome, but some of it, I think we just need to maybe have a bit of location. I just yearn to see a real sky. So that was like... That's the title of a dystopian science fiction novel, isn't it? (laughs) I yearn to see a real real sky. sky. But then again, some of the filmmaking on sets, when they're actually using a practical set with real people, there were some really, really good shots in there and just 
again, some very old Hollywood, classical Hollywood shots. I do like the boat. Um, I like that the kind of the main area is this huge lattice glass. It's almost like a panopticon. Mm. And you do get, and it kind of gives the false impression that wherever you are on the boat that you can be seen. But I kind of wish the film played into a bit more. Well, I think it did do that because that's a really good point. You could be seen, but there were some really interesting travelling camera shots where because of the glass and because of how the glass was set into the boat it would kind of refract the image so you would see something but it would be almost like another image beside it so what you were seeing you couldn't quite tell what you were seeing and what was not the real image that I thought was quite a nice little visual touch yeah one thing I did like is they, they had a couple of really good tracking shots in this which I do think if you're setting your film regardless of whether it's a murder mystery aboard a boat a train etc you need to give us the physical geography really well. And a tracking shot is just a really nice way to do that. It was, in terms of the physical space, it was very well laid out. So you knew where everything was. Because of course, it's one of these things where it's like, well, couldn't possibly have been me because I was there and they were there. Or it couldn't have been that person because she was here and they were there. And it was like, okay, yeah, I know exactly where you're talking about and the time it would take to do all these different things. There's also like a very good chase sequence in it as well, which I thought was good considering... I thought it was a bit silly. I thought I did find that slightly... Oh, I like that. It, it was silly, but yes. this isn't Agatha Christie. Yeah, I mean, whole, it's like... The whole, the whole construction is a sense of, essentially. Because yeah. I didn't grow up on Agatha Christie. I didn't see any of the films, never read any of the books. I kind of know them just because she was so influential. It's a thing in so many other murder mysteries. But it is just fun to go back and watch the original being done again. And you just get all the conventions... Like, when he locks the doors and says, the murderer is in this room, which was very regular. So I do like that when it's like, the killer is here. They'll look at each other. Well, that's good. And then when you get, when the killer then kind of reveals themselves in the chase scene, but you can't quite see who it is. And it was, and they're always just out of shot. Mm. You know, it's Hercule turns around the corner to try and get them. It's like, yeah, this is fun. It's cosy. It's fun. It's old fashioned. It's a good Friday afternoon watch. Yes, yeah, so that's why I liked it. There's an interesting, talking about my other loves, uh, Doctor Who. Yeah. There's an interesting, completely coincidence. Of course, at the start of this, he's just returned from a case in Egypt in Death on the Nile. It says at the beginning, you've just returned from Egypt. It's because the way that they end Murder on the Orange Express is he gets off the um, train and is met by somebody. He's like, he basically says almost verbatim, well, there's only been a murder on the bloody Nile or something like that. So the end of the previous film is meant to lead directly into this one without the setup. I completely forgot that. But yes, that's right. It does, doesn't it? But obviously that's not the version of that story they want to tell. And there's a very similar thing in Doctor Who. At the end of Matt Smith's first season, he gets a phone call of all the TARDIS. And he's like, as an ancient Egyptian goddess on the Orient Express. And then they don't tell that story. But then they tell a variation on that story in a Peter Capaldi episode. And they kind of tie the two together by going like, oh, actually that eventually never happened. Or, you know, it's now happening. There's been some sort of time delay to it. So, and also, to stay on Doctor Who, because weirdly this is all tying into Doctor Who, there's a David Tennant episode with Agatha Christie that's a murder the mystery. The the Wasp. It's in like a country house, isn't it? It's an Agatha Christie murder mystery. Well, yeah, and it ends by setting up the fact that Agatha Christie in real life disappeared for a week and a bit. That's right. And was presumed drowned. Well, at one point they thought she might have drowned. There's a place near where my folks live down in Surrey called Silent Pool, which is now known they've distilled a gin near there. And yeah, they thought, because they found a car in the lay-by nearby, and they thought she might have drowned in there. And then they found her, I think it was on the, in a hotel on the coast somewhere. You know she was just doing that for shit and giggles to say, wouldn't it be splendid if I orchestrated a real-life mystery involving myself, and then never said what it was, which meant that everyone would then just write their own things of what they thought happened. Um, cannibalism? Also, this was a film, I thought, in which everyone looked like a movie star. 
the hair and costumes were brilliant. The men and women were just immaculately tailored. It was like, yeah, this is a handsome looking film and it's from a previous age of storytelling. And also the fact that, I mean, it tries to, well, it does make the cast more diverse. It did a good job in terms of changing the characters so that you get the blues singer, you get the niece. That I thought worked. I thought it did some things very well. So before we get into spoilers, any other thoughts that you had about it? I like how they repeat the motif of the two not quite perfect eggs. Oh, is that in Murder on the Orient Express? That's in Murder on the Orient Express. That's... Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, yeah, because he... Is obsessed with cemetery. Cemetery? Oh, cemetery. <laughs> is obsessed with symmetry. Cemetery now. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast once where someone was talking about film and kept talking about the narrative. And it was like, you can't just change the word narrative to narrative. You can't just decide that that's how you're going to say it. Because Eddie just would not stop saying it and the person wouldn't pick him up on it. And it was like, can we please tell him to say it properly? But how do you say it again? Cemetery. Yeah, I basically pronounced it like the, like the word scimitar. <laughs> yes, he is obsessed with cemetery. <laughs> you know what, Rob? If you want to include bits in this that make fun of what, the things that I say, then remember, just remember, I edit the other podcast, so... But you leave that stuff in already. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I do. You hold no power over me. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's a really good point, because the other thing that they do to give some psychological shading to Poirot is that they just strongly suggest that he's OCD. Well, he well, is, isn't it? Because he has yeah. to have an even amount of desserts, so he can arrange them into a shape of, like, like a triangle of one, two, yeah, three. Yeah, he can arrange them into a pyramid. Pyramid? Oh, yes, indeed, of course it is. Well, that's actually very good. I missed that. Well, it is a triangle, because a pyramid is three-dimensional. No, but, but yes, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it has more story relevance than just being a triangle. <laughs> Amazing, <laughs> I guessed who it was. Yeah, what else is like a triangle? Toblerone. <laughs> That's it, Rob. Toblerone. The only other thing. Yeah. yeah, anything else before we get into spoilers? Yeah, see, I, I do like the uh, the motive, the repeated motive for the two not quite perfect eggs. I've got a theory on how Brenner would want to pay that off in a later film. Which could happen now, because if this is doing, if this is going to do well, they'll just heavily vet the cast and presumably like, Evil Under the Sun or The Mirror Cracked or Appointment but, with Death. I mean, it has to one. be, yeah, it has to be, like, it has to be one of them like Evil Under the Sun because... Again, you run out of set pieces very quickly. Because in terms of what, sorry? In terms of, most of them are set at, like, country manors. Oh, but I think you can do a good one in a country manor. Um, yeah, but I, I think maybe... You turn it into ready or not. <laughs> well, I think maybe it's partly the, um, obviously, Ryan Johnson yeah. with... Um, Knives Out. Knives Out. Almost sent it up to the extent I don't... I, would... I don't know, I think it's one of those... I think you could do it again, but yes, it would be... You'd have to look at Knives Out. But these are not straight thrillers these are very yeah, very yeah. cozy bouncy movies which are we getting to spoilers yes what should we use as the uh hercule or saying something very herculean just yeah just have to say the murderer is in the room or the killer is in the room is that in the trailer probably it yeah. probably is isn't it i mean when you've heard poirot say something along the lines of the killer is in this room you'll be in spoiler section you have a license for that monkey <laughs> yes it is. that was a price of steinway not anymore <laughs> <laughs> The murderer is here. And will stay here. And down the spoiler section. Okay. As soon as Army Hammer appeared, I thought, well, he's the killer because EO. But when Jacqueline shoots him in the leg, so shoots the Simon character in the leg, it's like, I don't trust what I'm seeing. And I think they're still together because she is following them. And previously, they've already they've already set up the idea of the Condine paint that's gone missing. Yes, indeed, and that kind of stuff. And also, everyone keeps talking about how fabulously wealthy the Gal Gadot character is. 
and how and, and how he has no he makes no claims to her money and he's very humble and he's that's right and it's like I just thought okay they're in on it together this is a ruse he's not really shot in the leg it was good the way that it was then Russell Brand confirms that yes he was shot in the leg because it was like not because I thought. Well, he must have been yeah. shot in the he's, leg. He's not going to pretend to have been shot in the leg for the whole thing. It's like, it's not like later on they're going to be like, well, well, where's your limp gone? Well, actually, I thought it might be a case that Russell Brand might have been in on it as well. Thinking like, well, has he been shot in the leg? But of course, at the very end, it shows that he shot himself in the leg. But there were some things there where I thought it, it might just be more than the two of them. But the thing that I thought was, I don't trust what I've just seen. I think they're in on it. I think this is all a scam to get her money. I did like how violent it was. Well, the, for part 12... with, the part Sorry. with um, where they find... The Rose Leslie character. Yeah, when, well, yeah, the part where they find Louise's body, or Louise's body is discovered because it's been caught up in the wheel. Yeah. That and her leg kicks against the glass. Yeah. That it's a good was... jump scare, isn't it? It is, it is. That was a really good moment, that was. And, it was. and there was a real sort of like, oh, look at that. The body's been caught up in the wheel of this steam, which is going round and round and round. It was like, ugh. But also, um, it's not particularly graphic, but just the bullet hole in Gal Gadot's head when it's you've got the scorch mark around mm. it because it was close range. The bit when Book gets shot in the throat is... Uh... Yeah, I wasn't expecting Book to... Uh, sorry, I expected Book to die from a few seconds before he was killed. What Tom said about it being the Otterborn character in the first film... Sorry, just for the... This is our friend Tom. Yeah, our, sorry, our friend Tom Seaman. Hey, Tom, if you're listening. Um, He's not. Yeah, the, uh, the Salome Otterborn character, who played by Angela Lansbury in the first film. Yeah, it was her who gets shot in order to prevent her from revealing. But apparently, it's according to our friend Tom, that's, from the sounds of it, is much more violent in the PG version when she gets shot because there's a quick flash of her face covered in blood. So she gets shot in the face, it seems. And he says it's often cut for telly because it's really, really strong. And it's surprising that it's in a PG movie, whereas here it's in the throat, which actually I thought, just the idea of being shot in the throat. There's a real kind of like nastiness to the murder here because in Agatha Christie things, it's like, yeah, there's been a murder. It's always very clean. And it's just like, yeah, the cat... Um, done using curare, some sort of exotic poison. and yeah. yeah, it's all very clean and there's no real violence to the deaths is how I understand it to be, but I could be completely wrong because I don't really know that much about how she writes. But in this, I thought, well, there's a real sense that there's been a violation to all these victims. The scorch mark around the gunshot wound on Gal Gadot, the shot in the throat, the Louise character has been caught up in the wheel. It's like there's these bodies are just being violated because they've been murdered. Well, that's actually quite a nice edge that this very cosy bank holiday feeling film was brought. I kind of figured that they were going to do it very shortly before they killed off Book. And it made sense of a couple of touches that I really liked. The fact that, you know, his mother, played by Annette Benning, paints him climbing the pyramid with the kite. And it's like, well, I don't quite understand. Like, that's, they're going to pay that little detail off somehow. And it's like, of course, it becomes tragic because he's, you know, he's no longer there. And it's his friend, happy, on this, in this picture. Um, I also expected that they were going to keep The idea on. also that he's, like, kind of ascending because he's in yes. an elevated position and he's flying a kite that has been lifted up into the sky. Yeah, so that's like a little foreshadowing, I suppose. I was expecting they were going to keep him alive and potentially use him in future films as, like, the replacement for Hastings. Because, you know, in the books, um, well, and in the t- if you've ever seen the um, TV series with uh, David Suchet, nope. the ITV, is, it, which is great. I think he did basically all of Poirot. Right. Um, you've got the character of Hastings, who's essentially his Watson. Okay. Who right. is in the first book, which is uh, Mysterious Affair at Styles, and then is in the final book, which is called Curtains, and it's a return to Styles. And obviously they haven't set that up in the same way here. But I'm, I was assuming that a grand is going to want to do curtains. 
Right. Um, because he kind of sets it up with the idea of Poirot's Catholicism, with the idea that you know he's got this rigid sense of justice. So obviously they're not going to be able to use Book as his Hastings. Though at the end of this, they kind of suggest that he might have a chance with Salome, with um, with um, Ottobon, the Sophia Okonedo character. Well, that was kind of running throughout, wasn't it? That there was like this, um, that he was very attracted to her. Because there was this thing about like, you know, is he going to finally get over the love of his life dying and dying in a way that meant that he felt a lot of guilt for it because he kind of blamed himself for it. And I thought, well... If he does hook up with her, then I just don't think that's going to I'm work. I'm not ready for a sex scene in a Poirot in a Poirot movie. <laughs> There's got to be a pun I, there. I, I do not want to think about the implications of that moustache. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm glad it didn't because it was like, well, he can't have a happy ending because his best mate has died. And I actually quite liked the fact that it had like a bit of a tragic feeling to the ending. Well, it's like in Murder on the Orient Express, they keep on having to find a way to increase the stakes. Mm. because the Agatha Christie novels, there are inherent stakes, but they're puzzle boxes. Yeah. And in this, they go, well, actually, we obviously want to have some emotional connection to Poirot. We want to find a way. And having Book die makes sense in that, because all of a sudden Poirot is personally... I mean, he's invested anyway. People are being murdered around him. But he's also... He's suddenly got that deeper level. And I do like in those scenes where he's going into the kind of the main ballroom, and you're seeing the refractions in the glass, and everything is just slightly off-kilter. Yeah. Which, as we've you know, said, Poirot is obsessed with symmetry. Yes. But also, but the whole thing there in terms of like, yeah, you are looking at something, but you are seeing something refracted. So therefore, what you are looking at is not actually what it seems. Part of me thinks, yeah, fine, it's cute. But uh, it's also very twee, making French and Saunders a gay couple. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I like that, actually. I it thought was, that was, it nice. was It was like, this is, this is painfully twee, but fine. This is... But it's also one of those things where it's like, it's painfully twee, but it's also very, very localised. Because it's like, well, that's not going to mean anything, I think, to, to people. Yeah, in British the... audiences are going to love this. Yeah, indeed, and I like that. I think it's because I grew up on the comic strip and French and Saunders and... Just all of those comedians. So I've been watching French and Saunders since I was a kid, which means that they've had a very, very long working career together. And to make them a gay couple, I thought, do you know what? That's actually just really sweet. And when they walk off hand in hand, it was like, this is a nice meta narrative being introduced to the film. We've had enough of the horrible meta narrative. Now this is like a nice meta narrative, but it's just for British audiences. And this, all, yeah. well, this isn't the first time we've mentioned them in the movie broadcast. What was the first time? Uh, on the Hannibal pod, because they do the Silence of the Landscape. Yes, of course they do. <laughs> yes, indeed. Which was, you yeah, know, which was fine. I preferred them here. But yeah, they were good. And I like, you know, it's Poirot's attention to detail. Like, he realises that they've been sharing a bed because one of the beds is still folded in the same way that it was when they left because whoever's doing it on board clearly has a slightly different style. Yeah, that was like... good. That, uh, yeah, suggested this bed hasn't been slept in, which suggested that you're sleeping somewhere else. It's like, oh, that's nice. And again, was all tied into the fact that he was investigating the murder. Yeah, you're right. The way that it is, how I imagine it to be in the 1978 one, where Peter Usnoff is like a slightly amused, detached observer, just yes. saying that could make him seem quite callous. Because it's like, well, people have died here. <laughs> there, there is that. But he also, he does also have like the humanising avuncular moments, like the equivalent in this where Poirot goes to talk to Jackie and basically says, you're ruined. You know, this will not have a happy ending. Yeah, that was a nice scene, actually. Emma Mackey, because I... It's one of those things where I thought, I don't know who she is. I think it's just that she looks... She kind of reminds me of Lily James. She just has that look about her. But I thought she was good, but I don't know. What what she Would you in? watch Sex Education? Oh, yes, you said. No, no, I don't. I think that's probably the main thing that people would know her from. Quite pleased with the fact that I uh, was completely spot on about the snake. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about that. So it's probably been mentioned before that I don't like snakes and really don't like snakes. 
But I'm normally okay with CGI snakes. I don't look at them, but they don't completely freak me out. This one, when he's talking and there's like a snake charmer and you can see the snake rising up from the basket and then he turns his back on it. So he's talking, I think, to uh, to Army Hammer and Gal Gadot. This is obviously the Pyro character. It's like, don't turn your back on that snake because it could get out of the basket and you wouldn't know it. And then it cuts to the snake out of the basket, lunging lunging at the camera like the film was originally shot in fucking 3D or something. And it's like, I just jumped and flinched in my seat and they must have thought that guy was a bit freaked out by that clearly cgi snake yeah that did make me jump because when i thought it would be actually sounds like what it is in the 1978 version i thought there would be a snake released into poirot's bedroom when he's asleep to get him apparently in the 1978 version there's something when he's in the bathroom and a snake I is vaguely, released into the i vaguely remember that i say I, I was just mostly happy that i i warned you that i thought there might be a snake scene in this oh i knew there's gonna be a snake scene in it. anything that's in egypt on the nile you just know there's gonna be a snake in it i just thought it would be on the boat i think actually it's one of those where i thought well i prefer that because it's very quick and it's over to go back to our friend tom he said that the scene in the bathroom he said that's gonna be a tough one for you to watch that is not as tough as the... I mean, yeah, to be honest, I just don't look at the screen. I just look away. But there's a Wes Craven film called Deadly Blessing where a woman's having a bath and a snake gets into the bathroom and gets into the bath with her and it's like... <laughs> so oh, I think to vomit it out of my nose. <laughs> you vomit with terror. So, uh, so what, yeah. What so type of snake is it? In Deadly Blessing? Yeah. Uh, because we're turning on the stuff. There's only one type of snake, Rob. A horrible, horrible snake. Yeah, but you know, not all snakes can breathe underwater. As a rule, no, like, just fucking hold it under the just drown the snake. You're you're in a that, better position than you'd be. That would mean you need to touch it, Rob. Years ago. I knew uh, you were gonna say that. What? What? Leicester Square. No, I was, I was actually gonna tell a different story, but oh, yeah, if you, if, if you want to say the Leicester Square. Years ago at Fright Fest, we were queuing outside of the Sydney World Leicester Square. For a book signing with the genius horror director, Dario Argento, one of my heroes, director of Suspiria, one of my all-time favourite films, because obviously he's so popular, the queue was going outside the cinema onto Letter Square. I was in a queue, couldn't move, and Rob was talking to me. His face then sort of like turned into shock and amazed amusement and said, do not look around, do not look around. It's like, well, the way that you've said that and the look on your face, there has to be a fucking snake behind me. He said, yeah, there is this. There are three guys who are holding snakes so that tourists could have their pictures taken with them. And it was about 10 to 15 feet away. So I had a look and it was like, ah, oh, they were not licensed to do that. Clearly the snakes were like, I think, had been slightly frozen. So they were completely docile. But people were having their pictures taken with them, weren't they? They were massive snakes. It was like, I'm trapped. I think I'm in hell. I think this is, I think I died. And this is hell. I'm in a queue to see Dario Argento, but I've got snakes next then, to me. Yeah, and then you turn back to look at me and I have the face of a snake. <laughs> yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. So, oh, it's fine. I'm in hell. I, anyway, it was very nice I to meet Dario Argento. Very nice to meet Dario Argento and he signed my book. But yeah, snakes. What was your oh, I just story? had a similar story being in Thailand years ago when I was a kid and us being the ones sort of, you know, holding the snakes... And then the uh, guy holding the snakes think it was funny to drop the snake's tail down my dad's uh, short leg. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Anyway, we've talked about snakes enough on this thing about death on the Nile. So was there any other things in spoilers other than... Um, Sorry, but you knew who the killer was anyway. Yes, yeah. How did Jackie shoot both herself and Simon with one bullet from a twenty-two? 
Because it's the end of the film. I didn't mind that. It but was, it's, it's a twenty-two. Yeah. They literally make a point earlier on how small a calibre it is. They let's call it a toy, don't yeah, they? Yeah, a toy. Yeah. She manages to shoot through herself and Army Hammer. Well, no, she shoots through him into her. Into, into herself, yeah. yeah. She, shoots, she shoots him in the back. I thought she was going to get her hands on the forty-five. Yes, indeed, because it is set up that there is a more powerful gun on yeah. board. Yeah, yeah, indeed, that's right. It wasn't enough for me to go like, that's silly because it's like well this is, there's, a, this is there's a really nice shot of like when she fires it and you see the, the different layers of fabric turning red yes that was really good apparently that's more violent in the 1978 version because here it was it all goes very quiet yeah. and it's and you can see and hear it but you see that she says I love you as they both fall and die whenever they show the flashbacks in this they do them in black and white and we haven't talked about the opening flashback. Yes, indeed, which we should talk about. So um, I don't want to spoil that because I was actually quite surprised that's how it opened. But it opens in World War One with him doing some amazing detective work that basically saves the life of his regiment. The main thing I got from Sorry, that is... Poirot's regiment. So, uh, yeah. The main thing I got from that is Branagh wished he'd directed 1917. Because you've got that single take going into the trench. And it's also black and white and there's a bird. So I was like, so also Macbeth? Yeah, but it's also like Paths of Glory... Mm. All quite on the Western Front. You just get the impression that he would like to direct a World War One movie. And it's um, a bird song, maybe. Somewhere. In terms of an origin story, it's not dissimilar from Poirot in the BBC ABC Murders, right. the one with Malkovich, because in that it turns out he was a priest whose congregation was murdered during the Rape of Belgium. So does he have an origin story in the book? So really. is it, well, yeah, it's, it's implied that he was, I think he was a, he was a detective in Belgium. He moved to, I think he moved to the UK during the war. Right. As like an emigre. Yeah. You see another character in the trench with a tash, the, the kind of tash that Poirot becomes recognised for, and then you see Poirot clean-shaven and young. Yeah. When the other officer gets blown up, I was almost expecting to see the tash floating down. <laughs> and like Poirot to, and like Brandon to pick it up. No, it would be like Poirot would, would be knocked over from the force of the explosion. And he floats down onto his top lip. Because <laughs> this formative moment when his father figure gets it. There was something there where, because he's grown the tash to hide a facial disfigurement from the blast, also, which makes no sense. Well, yeah, because you can't grow a moustache on Scottish. That's know? right. It was like, so I thought at one point they were going to reveal that it was actually like kind of one of those fixed mask things that you would see people from World War One who had facial injuries would wear like, but it's mm. it well, like that because that's always porcelain and you could yeah. always tell that it was a mask. Yeah. And here I was thinking, are they going to reveal that it's like a fake tash? But they didn't. But it's like, well, you can't grow a well, tash unless, right unless it's like the Tash equivalent of a comb-over, and he's just grown it in the bits that you can grow it, and then kind of styled the rest of it out. Uh, Which wouldn't work with that sort of Tash, because it would be like a big... Well, because it wouldn't be symmetrical. No. And he wouldn't have that. So, yeah. And it was also one of those things where it wasn't just his lip that had, had bits blown away from it. It was also his cheek as well. Yeah. And it was like, well, there's no scarring there. And, yeah, it, the, and that the, kind the of annoys me a bit. hides that so well that... Yeah. I, I also like the um, Annette Benning in it. Her character is kind of very anti-marriage. She's clearly had a bad relationship. And the fact that Annette Benning's been married to Warren Beatty for years... <laughs> Yeah, just decades is like, it's actually, it's quite nice. The fact that you're married to the, the one guy that everyone thought was never going to settle down. Yes, indeed, that's the right. Guy, the guy about whom the song, you know, You're So Vain, pretty much, you know, is confirmed as having been written. About him, yeah, yeah. that's right. It would see how we go. That's the thing that I like about these films, that it, it gets, so Murder on the Orient Express got Michelle Pfeiffer, this one's got Annette Benning. I'd like him to do another one. So after Murder on the Orient Express, when it sets up Death on the Nile, I thought, yes, I would like to see Death on the Nile. This one I enjoyed. As I said, it's no better or worse than Murder on the Orient Express. I could do with seeing another Poirot film directed by Brunard and starring him as Poirot. 
to be honest, without any of this cast, I think it's it's good to just have a fresh cast. I mean, I know the book was in the first one. Yes. But yeah, I'm not sure if there's anyone that you'll bring over from this one, though. Yeah, the originals, they also had Evil Under the Sun and Appointment with Death. Because, mm. yeah, you kind of, you run out of set pieces that are big enough to justify a large budget movie. And obviously, Brennard likes his sweep. He likes his, you know. Yeah. But I think with that, though, if it was set in a country house, you could have the virtual helicopter shot over the CGI house and stuff like that. And then like a sweep into the house. Is it going like, yeah, there's no better space to have a wonderful tracking shot than through the halls of a country house. I mean, you could easily do that. And I think the new, the setting of the new Knives Out is very Murder Under the Sun. Right. So they might end up skipping that novel just because it's like, well, they've kind of already done like it. Evil Under the Sun. Evil Under the Sun, sorry, yeah. Right. Death, um, murder, evil. Yeah, indeed. Just keep mixing them all up. <laughs> Abstract noun on concrete noun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's very good. So. On we, on, under, in, outside. Yes. <laughs> in we. On we, she wrote. So is there anything else to say about Death on the Nile? The fact that, yeah, I'm, I, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I, I'd already come up with my Saki references to it in the event, you know, dearth on the nil. <laughs> water, water everywhere and not a plot to think. Oh, okay, right. So you were writing these down as you were watching it. I just thought, yeah, this is a fine, enjoyable afternoon movie. Well done. My parents will watch this on on the BBC on a Sunday afternoon and say, that was fine. It is three stars. It is directly in the middle. Cool. Okay, then. Shall we wrap this case up? Yes, yeah, so we do, yeah, well, exactly. We need to have the, uh, the denouement. We need to have the, you're probably wondering why I have brought you all together. For the pod, for the, for the thing that you've just heard. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I don't. So, do you want to take us out? Yes. Well, Rob, as always, thank you very much for this. Well, thank you very much, one, for putting me up on my trip to London, and two, for the joy of doing a podcast in the same space as you. Oh. Uh, Rob, if uh, listeners want to find you online, where can they do so? Well, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com, filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk. If you want to read a book I wrote on Cape Fear, then you can do that at Amazon Online and WH Smith Online, Waterstones Online. Liverpool University Press. It'll all be in the show notes, don't worry. If you like movies and books, set again, set on the water. Oh yes, yeah. indeed, there is a there is a very good link there. You're very good at bringing in the links for my book that I should be saying myself, but that's why you've always got my back. If you love, and how couldn't you, the classic 1986 fantasy film Highlander, then Rob and I do a wonderful podcast, I would say, because he edits it and makes me sound good. <laughs> <laughs> called, no editing required called Another Time McLeod in which we go through Highlander scene by scene so each episode is about a scene and it's really good fun and yes if you want to listen to that that is available wherever you're listening to this if you want to follow that on Twitter it is at McLeod Time and if you want to send us a Highlander themed email about it then you can at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com Great. And yeah, and as uh, with that, as with this, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and you'd like to rate and review, please do so. It really does make a difference. If you want to follow me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon. I did not trust her. I still don't. What did you do last night? You accused me of murder. He accuses everyone of murder. It is a problem, I admit. 